Well, thank you. We're in Luke chapter 16 now. Luke chapter 16. If you were here last week, you heard the prodigal son, very beloved and well-known parable. And then in chapter 16, we get another parable of Jesus, not so well-known. In fact, the first time you read through it, you may say, how come I've never read this parable? Or, really, that's in the Bible. So I'll help you connect the dots this morning. And one of the beauties of preaching expositionally through a whole book of the Bible is we get the whole counsel of God's Word, not just the parts that make sense to us or our favorite doctrines or our favorite stories. And we said, and we've been saying that that's part of our problem as we come into this world with our own views, our own perceptions, our own expectations. Philosophers call them uh, presuppositions. And if we come to the Bible and only pick out the parts that make sense to us, then we will never be conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. We need the Bible to confront us and stop us in our tracks and make us scratch our heads and, and make us bow in humility And then, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so we come to the Word, and as the people of God, we are those who say, I am fallen, I need the Word of God to change me. I am suspicious of the way I see things. I am learning to be suspicious of my own dreams, and my own expectations, my own interpretations of the world. They've led me astray. They've torn apart community. And worst of all, it's separated me from God. And when I came to Christ, and if you are in Christ, you've acknowledged this. You've repented. You've you've had a change of mind like the prodigal son. You've come to your senses. And you've returned home and you are now teachable. And you're ready for God to say, show me the way the world really is. Show me the way your kingdom is intended to be. Lord, teach me to pray. And he teaches us to say, your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then we get to this parable. We go, huh. Wow, I was not expecting that. Kingdom living, though, requires kingdom motives. We need new motives. And aren't we glad, amen, that Jesus gives us a new heart and changes our motives? He gives us new motives. He's not in the business of changing behavior to make us look good on the outside. That's what the Pharisees were all about, remember? Cleaning the outside of the tomb. What? whitewashing the tomb, but the inside of the tomb filled with dead men's bones. They clean the outside of the cup, but the inside's filthy. All these metaphors Jesus would use. We have new motives. And so this morning, we'll start a series about um, new motives that will lead to new behaviors about various aspects of life. And we start 
right where it really hurts, money. So if you're visiting this morning, it's your first time, uh, I guess God's got something to teach you about money this morning. And don't we all need to learn about money? You, you can't escape money. The, um, the monk tried to, right? I'll go to the monastery, take a vow of poverty. But that doesn't deal with the heart. You'll just replace the money with, with, with something else. So we want to get to the root of what this problem is with money. First and foremost, we saw that where uh, humanity gets things wrong is in the realm of redemption. The Pharisees and scribes couldn't understand why Jesus was hanging out with sinners. This is going to help us understand what our, what our deal with money is. There's a connection here. The, the, uh, there's a reason Luke puts these in this order. So let me, let me connect the dots for you this morning. We come into this world with this view that everything is a competition. That it's a competition. And if you believe there's a God, then the way this works is if I win the competition, I will be rewarded with God's favor. If, if I'm a good person and I, and I do good, then God has to love me. He has to bless me. He has to give me a prominent role in the kingdom. Well then, how do we know if we're winning the competition? Well, we compare ourselves with one another and we set some kind of standard. And even if it's God's standard, like the Pharisees and scribes had God's standard, they had the law, we know they added to the law though, and focused on the parts they added, because those are the easier parts to keep. And they used that to judge themselves against other people. And it formed a type of self-righteousness. I am righteous because I keep the rules better than other people. In that system, there's no need for God's mercy. There's no need for His grace. So when Jesus is extending mercy to sinners... They have no category for this behavior. The way they saw the world was this. The the way I know that I'm a good person is primarily through my wealth. Through my wealth. God blesses those who are righteous with material wealth. And those who are under the heavy hand of God's rebuke, are poor. And we would say, in general, there are natural consequences to rebelling against God. Often it leads to poverty, but sometimes rebelling against God leads to great wealth, does it not? And sometimes following God will lead to material blessing, but not always. It's a horrible litmus test or indicator for where you stand with God. Yet it had become the chief test in this culture that God is pleased with me. 
I'm going to say something and be very careful on it, because I know these things are recorded. Very careful that no hint of anti-Semitism comes from this pulpit. God loves the Jewish people. He chose them as His special people. He has made covenants with them that He will keep, even though they've often broken their end of the deal. I'm sure we're all aware that there are certain stereotypes that come with being Jewish. One of those having to do with money. And it has stuck with them as a people for hundreds of years. Sometimes unfairly, other times fairly. But like with most stereotypes, behind the stereotype, there's a kernel of truth. And we see the early vestiges of this stereotype in the pages of Scripture. Jesus flat out says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Why? Because it's how they knew God was happy with me. I've won. I've won. Here's the proof. You lost, I won. Now, we're all competitive, some more than others. But as a people, the Jewish people are very competitive. Very competitive. Very striving for success. Sending their kids to the best, best schools. And you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer or work on Wall Street. And I'm being careful here because I'm not saying this in derogatory fashion because all of us struggle with money. And God is giving us examples in the Scriptures because it's easier to see in someone else's heart what is going on in your own. I, I see it in them first. And then Jesus calls us to say, now, could that be you as well? I guarantee everybody in this room has some kind of struggle when it comes to money. Because we all have problems with the heart. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They're linked. So, be careful that we don't turn this into a sermon of, well, look at those greedy Jewish leaders That becomes the root of anti-Semitism. Then we can look in our current day and say, well, at least I'm not like all the owners of Goldman Sachs. Yet the truth is that a huge portion of the world's wealth is concentrated in a people that make up a small percentage of the overall population. You say, well, how is that? And if it was other cultures, it would be totally un-PC to even be talking about it. Should we be talking about this? But there's two people on the face of the earth that PC can't touch. Evangelicals and Jews. We're open game. And so sociologists and historians have studied this extensively. Why are the Jewish people so rich? Why are they so good at banking? Why are they so wealthy? There's ugly explanations. There's 
better explanations, but I don't think anyone that I read ever really gets down to the heart of the matter. Some of the explanations are, well, as they've been persecuted as a people, where whatever country they end up in, the uh, money lending was always seen as something dirty and filthy that you didn't want to get involved with, so it was the only kind of occupation that the, the Jews, as they were persecuted and scattered, could do. And so over hundreds of years, they have just become very good at banking and investing money. First friend I made at UCLA, first good friend, Dave Honig, only child, father, Jewish CPA. We went to a, a comedy show together, and while we were sitting there, I just couldn't wait for the comedian to come out, what kind of jokes, and I was going to laugh and, and just have a good time. And, and uh, Dave said, well, that's kind of what makes you different than my people. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, my parents took me to go see Richard Lewis last year, the Jewish comedian. And um, my dad started counting all the seats in the auditorium. And then multiplied by the price of the ticket. And was like, wow, I didn't know comedy paid so well. And Richard Lewis comes out and his opening bit was, how many Jews are here today? How many fellow Jews? And two-thirds of the place or three-fourths raise their hand. And he's like, now how many of you counted up all the seats and multiplied by your ticket price? And a big roar went up and elbows being, yeah. And I remember kind of telling him, well, uh, talking about your money was something we didn't talk about in my home. And he's like, oh, no, for us, it's, you know, how's, how's your portfolio? How's your portfolio? What are you investing in? That, that's what we talk about at dinner time with our friends. And I'm like, huh, how interesting. And there was pressure on him that no matter what his happiness was in life, if he wasn't successful, it was going to be a disappointment, financially successful. It was going to be a disappointment for his parents. Now, I don't think that's limited to the Jewish people. I think we should know better as evangelicals, but I see just under the surface of I want my kids to love Christ and to follow Christ and, and to view the world the way Christ views it, I see a whole lot of energy being expended making sure our kids are financially successful in this world. We put a lot of time and energy and we unintentionally communicate loud and clear to them that what's more important is your financial success in life. We don't mean to, but that's what's going on in our hearts. So let's look at a different view of looking at money and what it's for. It's not to say, I've arrived, God's happy with me. It's not even to make a lot of money so you can give generously so God will be happy with you. Anytime you're doing anything to try to make God happy with you, you've missed the whole point of the gospel. That's what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions is that God himself did what needed to be done for God to be happy. He sent his son to live a perfect life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve and rose again so we could be accepted. And we could hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Before we've 
even lifted a finger. In Christ we are accepted. And now we're free to perform out of gratitude and trust that there is a better way to live. To live in community. To be about redemption. To be about restoration. That's why Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. To help them to see this is what makes God excited. Redemption. Restoration. Community. Family. Hard for that to happen when you see everyone around you as competition. That resources are limited and i got to get mine before you get yours. And that was the view that the older son had. Why he wasn't excited when his brother came home. All he could see in his brother was the kid who squandered daddy's inheritance. And doesn't deserve love and doesn't deserve to be invited back into the community. God's in heaven with the perspective of he's got infinite resources. Infinite resources. God is excited when a sinner repents and comes home. Who cares how many earthly dollars it costs? Money comes, money goes. Souls last forever. So let me give you some kingdom principles based on a very shocking parable. Very shocking parable. Kingdom principle number one concerning money, that we are merely managers of God's money. And we're all saying, well, I already knew that, Pastor. We say that every time we pray for the offering, right? That we'd be good stewards. It all belongs to you. But... Just under the surface, we don't actually believe that. Because if we did, we'd spend our money a lot differently. We would ask God. I think we naturally, the natural man, has the view that I worked hard for this money. It's mine. And part of what cultivates that sense of entitlement in us is that we reject rightly socialistic views that everything belongs to everyone and if we need to take from you to give to this person, that's fair and good and just. We, we would reject that. Neither view is correct. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God and it will be used for the things He wants it to be used for. If you're going to live in His family, in His kingdom, you need a new view on how to spend God's money. Because we are merely managers of God's money. So he starts telling this story that again will draw in the crowd, especially the Pharisees, draw them in with something from the material world that we all understand and it makes sense to us. So that he can make a connection with the spiritual world. Something we don't have a lot of familiarity with. So he says, now, there was a rich man. Oh, okay, I'm tracking. (laughs) These were rich men. And this manager, they probably had people who they entrusted part of their wealth to. Manage their home, manage their wealth. 
It was reported to him that this manager was squandering his possessions. See the connection with the prodigal son? In that case, it was a son who was, in a sense, a manager of God's wealth who was squandering his possessions. Except that story had the shocking ending to the Pharisees that instead of being rebuked, the father welcomed him home with opened arms and restored him back to fellowship and even gave him privileges, a ring, a robe, and sandals for his feet. So in this story, we get a bit of a contrast. The manager says to the prodigal steward, He calls him in and says, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. Okay, this makes more sense to the Pharisees. This guy's getting canned. He's getting fired. And before he's going to get fired, he's got to give an account of what he's done with his master's money. So whether you're living in in the kingdom of this world, you understand that sometimes we're given a stewardship of things that are not our own and we have to give an account. We understand that. You have to give an account to your employer. Right? If you're married, you have to give an account to your wife. I'm just kidding. I'm just seeing if you're awake. You're awake out there. When you, when you uh, do, take a test or write a paper, you're giving an accounting to your instructor. So we have lots of these relationships in our world. You don't have to be a slave in order to understand this, that we've been given a stewardship and we have to give an accounting. So there's kingdom principle number one. Kingdom principle number two, then, is that we won't have this money that we're managing forever. In fact, all of the resources God's given us, whether it's our time, our talent, or our treasure, these are temporary things He's given us as a stewardship. And we act as if these are the things that are forever because they're part of our daily life and infiltrate all of our daily activity. And so it's understandable that we get this wrong view of our time, our talent, and our treasure. And we need God to come down and tell us the way it is. Look, in heaven the streets are paved of gold. So gold's not going to be a great commodity. You could just chisel it off the street. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's dirt. It's dirt cheap. So why are we spending so much time accumulating wealth when it won't make any difference in the kingdom of God? Remember in the 80s, the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. And then the rejoinder was he who dies with the most toys dies. You know. Yeah, that's the right perspective. Or uh, pastors used to always say, you'll never see a U-Haul attached to the hearse. It just doesn't work that way. And we all say, you're right. And then we go right back to living the way we live. Maybe deciding next week I'll put another 2%. I don't know. What sounds reasonable? What, what's enough to get my conscience clear? 
God doesn't want us giving out of compulsion and he doesn't want us giving to check off boxes. He wants us giving because we're excited about giving to the things God is excited about. And we won't have forever to invest in certain things. There's certain things you can only invest in now while you're here on this earth. And you're like, is it stocks? Is it bonds? Is it cattle futures? What is it? What's the hot tip? Don't ask me. I don't have a great portfolio. In Christ, though, I've got a slamming spiritual portfolio. So I do have some hot stock tips spiritually for you this morning. Go see who has all the money spiritually, Jesus, and look and see what he invested in. Right? Because isn't, isn't that the way the world works? What's Warren Buffett invested in? What's, what's Jeff Bezos investing in? You know. This is, this is how the world works. That guy's got a lot of money. I'll invest in what he's investing in. But as Christians, we're in this spiritual kingdom. Let's see what Jesus invested in. The man who had no place to lay his head. So it wasn't in fancy homes or fancy clothes. What did he spend his time and his money investing in? So back to the story, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? I'm going to be fired. I have nothing in savings. My master's taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't do manual labor. And I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. I ain't going there. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their home. So he's thinking about his future, and God's getting us to think about the future. Like this guy. He's thinking about his future. So that's, that's just the principle. We won't have earthly money in heaven, so... Stop thinking about money in terms of what it can get me now and start thinking of it in terms of what can it do eternally. What can money do eternally? Kingdom principle number three. Therefore, we should make plans to use our resources wisely. We should intentionally make plans to use our, i.e. God's, resources wisely. Well, we don't know how to do anything wisely on our own. Even in this area, we need God's wisdom. God, show us how to use your money wisely. And so the story continues. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Really? Yes. I still have authority to do this. So do it. With the implication of when I get out of my master's house, you owe me. I'm going to go cash in some favors. And he said to another, "Um, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. He's winning for himself friends on the outside. So when he gets kicked out of the house, he's got friends who will take care of him. 
well, this seems dishonest. You bet it is. And Jesus is not commending any kind of dishonest behavior. He's going to go on to say, look, if the world knows how to do this, and they're dishonest and filled with darkness, how much more should the sons of light be shrewd with winning friends for themselves once this stewardship passes away? See the connection. And the brilliance in the way Jesus tells the story is he's cashing in on the fallenness of the Pharisees' hearts. He's telling a story that they would totally track with. Publicly, they'd be like, oh, that's terrible. On the inside, brilliant. Well played. (laughs) In fact, this is the way the story ends. Luke 16, 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager. Notice Jesus is clear to use the word unrighteous. This is not somebody that we are holding up as a hero. But here in the earthly realm, this unrighteous master is praising the shrewdness of the unrighteous manager. You know, he's like, well, well played. It's about time you did something shrewd with my money. And Jesus says, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Jesus is making the point that unbelievers are at least shrewd with their resources. Christians ought to be even more shrewd in an honest way. So maybe not the word shrewd, but intentional, strategic deliberate we're filled with light now we have enlightenment so stop using your old light which was darkness to live in the kingdom now and you're like yeah but the but but the fallen world this is the way it still operates and if i'm going to get ahead you know ahead in the fallen world i've got to play by the rules It's not really what this sermon's about. It's just Jesus is saying, look, if you're in the kingdom now, you have whole new goals, new focus. You're focused on eternal matters. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then these other things will fall into place. So Jesus goes on to say, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of the unrighteousness. I like the King James often refers to worldly money as filthy lucre. I got to go with the King James there because it just sounds just evil and dirty. The filthy lucre. So we're not supposed to take a vow of poverty... What makes money filthy isn't the money itself. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Why would you love money? Because of what it could do for me. It makes me feel special. It makes me feel better than other people. It makes me feel secure that I don't need anyone's help, that I don't need God's providence. And most of all, that it's proof that God is happy with me. 
And if you don't have much, then obviously God's not happy with you. And that was the culture Jesus had to change. Now, I think in our culture, that particular aspect isn't as prevalent. We don't go around saying, well, if you're poor, it's because God is punishing you. But I do believe we don't have to look very far in our hearts to discover that we're not that much different Because living in a meritocracy, in a capitalist society, it cultivates pride in our heart that if I've got money, it's because I've worked hard for it and deserve it. And we forget that everything we have is a gift from God to be used in a specific way to bring him glory. And it wouldn't take much for any of us to be completely wiped out financially like that. One illness, one lawsuit. And in a meritocracy, the highly skilled positions that God has gifted you to be able to do tend to be the ones that pay more than others. And out of all world systems, frankly, I'm going to put capitalism up and against any other world system, but they're all world systems and they're all fallen and none of them are perfect and they're not meant to be perfect. But we have to be careful as Americans in a church that is very blessed financially that we don't attach God's favor to our portfolio. This is proof God is happy with me. The cross and the empty tomb is proof that God is happy with his son. And in Christ... He can be happy with you. And with that perspective, that changes everything. I'm no longer competing against the rest of you to earn God's favor. We all stink. But in Christ, we're all clothed with the righteous robes of Christ and we're adopted into His family. And you're my brother and my sister. And we're going to sit around the throne together in heaven and we're all going to worship the Lamb who was slain and we're going to say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all glory, honor, and majesty and I won't care about your accomplishments and you won't care about mine and we'll only care about Jesus' accomplishments. And then and only then if Jesus in His perfect wisdom wants to turn around and say, hey, let's call forward Joe Schmo." who got no accolades on earth, but now that's a choice servant. Then that's God's business. If that happens in heaven, that would be God's business. I I do know from Paul that there will be this Bema seat. I don't completely understand it, but the Bema seat wasn't the judgment of are you righteous or unrighteous, are you guilty or not guilty, That's the great white throne of judgment. The Bema seat is for believers to have all of your works, all of your giving, all of your serving judged by God and the things that were done from a pure heart for the kingdom will survive 
like precious gems, and the rest, Paul says, will be like what? Wood, hay, and stubble. It'll just burn up. So, kingdom principle number four, invest money in things that will last eternally, like disciples. Winning souls for heaven and helping people to become like Christ, which I know is a hard thing to measure. It's not like money. It's not like a building. It's not a material thing. And there's no end to helping someone become like Christ here on earth. Okay, am I done with this person now? No. You're never done becoming like Christ until heaven when we're glorified. So I know it's hard because you're investing in something that doesn't really have closure. What is it you think that teaches us about God's heart? He says interested in the process as he is in the destination. I'm a I'm a teacher, a math teacher. I I hate having to assign the grade, but I do it. But I help my students to understand that making discoveries about the mathematical realm reveals glorious things about our God. And I get more excited when you make a discovery than when you get an A on a paper. And as one of Nathan's professors once said to him, some of you in this class you're taking, it will be a sin for you to get a C. And for others of you, it'll be a sin to get an A or a B. Well, how is that? How is that? Because your heart is what matters. If you're all about the grade and school's easy for you, then the A may just puff you up. And if you struggle, but you gave it your all, and, and you were there to learn the material and grow closer to God and become a better prepared pastor, and you happen to get a C after all that, who cares? Because it wasn't really the grade that mattered. The grade is just there for accountability. Sometimes we need, unfortunately, in our fallenness, to be motivated by the things that shouldn't matter as much to help nudge us along until we grab hold of the things that should truly matter. I want to study the Scriptures to glorify God Hey, you're teaching next week, the, the leading the Bible study. I'm really studying the scriptures then. Because I don't want to embarrass myself in front of the whole Bible study. Or I want them to be impressed with my Bible knowledge. And then you're, oh, shame on me. But sometimes it takes that accountability of, hey, it's your turn to teach. To move you from complacency to excellence. If everybody got money, no matter how hard they worked, what do you think would happen? Well, we know what would happen. Look at Venezuela or any other socialist country. It just doesn't work. It doesn't align with human nature. But our better angels would tell us, look, that can't be the only motivation. Work really hard and and you'll get money. 
So we put things in place that mitigate fallen human nature while at the same time preaching the gospel to bring out more noble motivations in us. Until we get to the place where we're doing things because we can't wait to do this for our God. So you may be at a place in your walk where you're like, well, it's really hard for me to give to missions. It's really hard for me to put money in the plate. I just don't trust that it's going to be used wisely. But I'll start somewhere. And if your motivation is because God told me to do it and I want to be obedient and I don't want to be punished, I'm going to do it. That's not really a great motivator for giving. But if you don't give to kingdom purposes and that's where you need to start and you need to hear a rebuke, then hear a rebuke this morning. But what Jesus is after is your heart that you would get to a place where you are so thankful for your salvation and that it cost Jesus everything and cost you nothing that you can't wait to invest in this thing that brings great joy to God. To see sinners saved. To see lives changed. I can't wait to invest in that. And we will get to the place where we're like, it doesn't make sense to invest in anything else but that. And even what I invest in here in an earthly setting is so I can get more on my return, so I'll have more to invest into the kingdom. And you start to see your livelihood as uh, worshiping God by using the gifts He's given you to make this world a better place, to be productive, to provide for your family, but also to use that money to invest in people's lives. And Jesus says, Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, and by the way, if you still use a King James, which is a Wonderful translation of the Bible. The word it will say you. It'll say when you fail. But it's a mistranslation. The the verb should be in the third person singular. When it fails. When money fails. When we no longer need money. In heaven we won't need money. They these friends you've won, will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Hey everyone, Joe's here. Joe prayed for me to receive Christ. Joe led me to the Lord. Joe mentored me in the scriptures. And that has eternal value. Hey, didn't Joe buy you that that thing. Yeah, that's gone. I couldn't take that with me. In fact, it was actually a hindrance to my walk with God. That thing. That Joe bought for me because he wanted me to be impressed with him. But Joe invested his time in me. We met. 
over the Word of God, and he discipled me, and, and he taught me how to make disciples of other people. Or Sheila met with me in my time of grief, and she wept with me, and she helped me to understand how to overcome my grief and to find my joy again in Christ. That is something that will have eternal rewards. Isn't that great to know you're investing in things that no matter what happens to the stock market and you know this bull market ain't lasting forever. When everyone else is weeping that their 401k just took a hit, you're saying, well, my 401k in heaven is full. Praise the Lord. And he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And the little thing God's talking about is money, which we think is a big thing. We think it's a big thing, but Jesus is saying, he who is faithful in a very little thing, oh, this money, see their perspective in heaven is, eh, money, it's a little thing. We're consumed with it. We're thinking about how we can make more of it all the time. I don't have enough of it. You ever prayed that prayer, God, help me win the lottery so that I can really invest into the kingdom. Come on, people. It's not the way God works. Be faithful in a very little thing how you handle money. And you will be faithful in the things that count for much. But he who is unrighteous in a very little thing, the way they view and handle money, will inevitably also be unrighteous in much. In the things that matter most. The much things. So then kingdom principle number five, God will entrust more resources to the faithful kingdom investors. He said, well, how come then so many unbelievers are rich? You're thinking about money in the wrong way. You're thinking about money in the wrong way again. God has a lot to entrust to us. The whole Beth Moore study is called entrusted, right? It's not just money he's entrusted. In fact, the most important thing he's entrusted to us, what's the deposit that he's talking about in 2 Timothy, Pat? The gospel. That's much. The gospel is the greatest treasure because it gives us access to the greatest treasure, God. Relationship with God. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So the question then is, why would anyone want to serve wealth? I don't serve wealth. I don't want to serve wealth. I serve God. No, be honest with yourself. We do end up serving wealth. Why? Because we think wealth can do for us what only God can do for us. Tell us we're good people. Tell us we're successful people. Tell us we're the kind of people... You should be happy with because God is happy with me. Money can't do that. It can't speak. It's a dumb idol. 
I was reading in the Psalms this weekend that idols are deaf, they can't hear, they're dumb, they can't speak, their, their hands don't work, they can't give. And then it says, and those who trust in them will become like them. Those who entrust in them will become like them. You'll have a mouth, but you can't speak correctly. You'll have ears, but you can't hear spiritual truth. You'll have hands, but you won't be serving the living God. And so finally then, principle six, how you invest your money demonstrates what you truly love. You can say, I love God and I love others and I do love the kingdom and I love seeing people redeemed. Just to make sure you're not lying to yourself, see how you're investing your time, your talent, and your treasure. What occupies your thoughts? When you're plotting your next move, is it about winning souls or making disciples or teaching God's word or is it how I can climb the ladder of success, how I can get the promotion. Now it's okay to plan how can I better leverage myself financially so that I have the time and the resources to do God's work. It's pretty hard to do God's work when you're handling your money poorly. But if you're not careful, it's human nature to say, as soon as I get my little kingdom set up just right, I'll really be able to serve God. And then that day never comes. You're you're busy setting up your little kingdom and getting your house just the way you like it. And just when you got it the way you like it, you're like, you know what? We've kind of outgrown this place. We We need a new little kingdom. And new furnishings and new furniture and new, you know... So you have to be careful. Now let me say this up front. We are very blessed here. This is a generous church. I think, but that's my human perspective. All I know is whenever someone's going on a mission trip and we need to collect, you guys come through. And when we do Operation Christmas Child, we have shoeboxes stacked to the ceiling. And when somebody's hurting financially, the deacon's offering takes care of it. And if it didn't, and we just kind of put the word out, an embarrassment of riches come in. I and the elders have no idea how much you give individually. We never look at those records. The only one who has access to that is the treasurer. And we do that so that we don't minister to people with partiality. Ooh, they're big time givers. We better make sure we keep them happy. But what I want to warn you of today is the human tendency to then say that we are blessed financially as a church because God is happy with us. Maybe. Maybe not. Don't use our healthy bottom line and the fact that we're in the black and we have money and savings as proof that God is happy with us. God is happy with us because we put our faith in Jesus Christ and confessed we're sinners, worthy of nothing. And everything we have is God's grace. That's how God will be pleased with us. 
and then to use his resources to invest in the kingdom, not out of compulsion and not to try to twist God's arm into being happy with us, but because we, out of the overflow of the joy of our heart, we want to honor and worship God and get involved in what he's involved in. Sign me up for that. If it brings God joy, that's what I should be involved in. If that's what Jesus invested in and he invested his whole life, literally, into winning souls, then that's what we should invest in. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. What a fool. What a fool. What is this guy now? Look, look at his clothes. What is he, a carpenter's son? He didn't even go to school. What does he know? Son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Where's, where's, where's his fancy home? Where's the proof we should listen to this guy? I don't see any material proof he knows what he's talking about. But the people who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness saw that Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. And they put their faith in Jesus Christ and began laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And so I say to all this this morning, let us look at our finances, our, our treasure, our time, and our talents, and see where we're investing. Do we invest where Jesus is investing? Let's pray. Father, Teach us to be good stewards like your son. May we invest the way he invests and reap a huge windfall in heaven of souls won for eternity and people transformed into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Amen.